From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Tony Schwartz is the founder and CEO of The Energy Project, which he started back in 2003. He's a thought leader on sustainable high performance and building more humane workplaces. He's been a frequent contributor to the New York Times, having started his career as a journalist, and he's the author of several big books, including The Power of Full Engagement, Managing Energy, Not Time, which he wrote with Jim Lehrer, and The Way We're Working Isn't Working. He's also the co-author with Donald Trump of The Art of the Deal, which we do talk about near the end of our conversation. But now, get ready to listen and learn from Tony Schwartz about how to create greater energy and focus to be more productive at work and at home. Tony, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. You know, um, Tony, uh, your mother was a revolutionary. And uh, I was in the audience here at the Wharton School, uh, this has to be 1990, when she spoke here um, as, as the founder of the incredibly important organization Catalyst and as a true leader and outspoken voice for parental support for women in the workplace and other important social causes, she had a, a profound impact on the conversation in her day. Uh, and in the audience here, she encountered what she then later wrote about as the riddle of the ring, uh, which we might get to talk about. It came from a question of one of the women in the audience said, you know, what should I do, wear my ring or not when I'm at job interviews? And that, that really troubled her. Uh, there's so much, we could probably spend the whole hour talking about uh, Felice Schwartz. I, I'm sure she'd be very proud of what you're doing today. And so I wanted to start by just asking, how does her legacy live on in the work that you're doing now? Well, it's a, it's a funny thing. Uh, I, I've been thinking a lot about my mother, particularly in, as these men have stepped forward. Uh, I shouldn't say they've stepped forward. They've been outed mm-hmm. uh, for the ways in which they were predatory toward women, and that would have been something my mother would have been deeply engaged in and outraged about um you know it's funny my mother's legacy uh she was as you knew probably uh she as you know she was a very very uh powerful and intense figure and uh a tough person to have as a mother uh and on the one hand i think she gave me this deep, deep uh, internal sense that 
one had to use one's life if 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 as i was uh you you had good fortune you know to whom much mm-hmm. is given much is expected you had to use your life in a meaningful way to add value in the world and that message even though in some ways i fought against it just to separate myself <laughs> when i was young mm-hmm. um stayed in me in a very deep way in fact you know when we'll talk a little later about about donald trump i mm-hmm. think uh, my decision, my much regretted decision to write a book with Donald Trump uh, that I've been trying to do penance for now for 30 years, uh, probably a big part of my motivation was to kind of put my finger in my mother's eye that I would do something that she would be appalled by oh, wow. and I would separate myself. I was completely mm-hmm. unconscious of that at the mm-hmm, time. But mm-hmm. In retrospect, I think it's probably true. And yet, as I say, she was a huge uh, factor in my deciding that I wanted to do something that would be uh, that would be consistent with the principles that she ingrained yeah. in me. Mm-hmm. At the same time, my mother was very focused on um, the outer behavior, the what what was the circumstance in her case, what was the circumstance in which women found themselves in the workplace mm-hmm. and how could she change policies and practices and uh, increase the number of women who were in positions of leadership in right. I mean, that's the founding world. principle of, of Catalyst. Very much so. And, you know, interestingly, my focus has been very much on the interior. Um, mm-hmm. It's, how can you change, how can you influence the experience, the inner experience, the internal experience of hmm. people in order to uh, make them feel better? Because how you feel is ultimately the most profound factor in how you perform. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's something that, uh, much as women themselves were disenfranchised in the workplace when my mother started doing her work, mm-hmm. um, the interior life, the idea of the, the, the notion that feelings matter at all has barely been part of the conversation in the, in the corporate world. Yeah, no, it was just emerging. Day. And it, was, it was the 60s yet, where the, the human potential movement really started to flower, and, and following that, the whole quality of work-life movement uh, in, in the American industry uh, and, and in social movements in, in Europe gave rise to an openness to considering the person as more than a machine at work. Uh, and, and the work that you do and the work that I do and, and a number of people now, it's normal to, 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 to explore the inner world and to help understand how to integrate the, the life of uh, the person with the life that is required at work. Uh, and, and you, and your work is very much in, in the center of that. So, uh, Please finish your your thought about and now, and, and how it is distinct from well, and complementary to what your mother did. I, I yes, absolutely, and I'm sure she would be supportive of it. Uh, you know what we have now is a kind of unprecedented circumstance, probably influenced most of all by technology, in mm-hmm. which the world has speeded up extraordinarily. The number of uh, demands on people and the number of inputs into their lives have increased, you know, exponentially, and the demand capacity curve has shifted, and mm-hmm. demand exceeds people's capacity 
you know, across virtually every organization I go into, and that includes uh, the CEO. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be working tomorrow all day with the CEO of a very large company who uh, I had a conversation with. I met him probably six or eight months ago, and I had a conversation uh, about, I started to have a conversation about the work we do, or I should say I met him at a conference, and then we subsequently got on the phone. And in this conversation, I would ordinarily be saying to that person, so tell me, you know, how, what challenges you're facing in your organization mm-hmm. and how we might help. Mm-hmm. And before I could even get to that, he said, hey, it's not about my organization, it's about me. I'm yeah. totally exhausted. Mm-hmm. I'm overwhelmed. I can't manage this. I feel, uh, I feel embarrassed and frustrated by, I wanted this job all my life. I just <laughs> got it. And now I just find it undoable. Wow. Can you help? Yeah. And Stu, I've had that conversation with probably 20 to 25 CEOs over the last year. And in every case, my, uh, my initial impulse to focus on their organization gets preempted by their desire to talk about what they're facing. So yeah. we are in an inside and out, situation. right? Inside in their, in their inner lives, as well as in the roles that they play as, as, uh, uh, as yeah, executives. they tend not to be very conversant with their inner lives, and mm-hmm. uh, that really becomes a focus of our attention here at the Energy Project, is to find a way, a bridge, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to people who have spent their lives focused on the external world and have been incredibly successful in navigating it, uh, to then introduce them to the idea that not only is there importance in addressing their own inner world and the inner world of their, uh, the way their people are feeling, but mm-hmm. that actually the focus on uh, success and accomplishment and money and power and uh, you know visible manifestation of your uh, reason for being your worth. is is actually a way of avoiding mm. what they're feeling inside. Mm. And you know, Stu, it's very much connected to what we're seeing with these men who have, as I spoke about earlier, who have been uh, outed as you know, sexual predators. What's, what's interesting about this whole phenomenon is that the Harvey Weinsteins and the Charlie Roses and the Roy Moores of the world are the very outer extreme of the worst behavior you could imagine in men. But the impulse that drives their behavior is something all men or virtually all men I've met can relate to, mm-hmm. whether they want to acknowledge it or not. Mm-hmm. And that is hmm. that inner sense of hating weakness and vulnerability and any sense that they're out of control and not in charge of the situation. And then the overcompensation becomes at its extreme, what you've seen with these men who've who I've just mentioned, but in all kinds of men, you see the aggressive behavior, the need for power, the need to list their res- you know, so, their accomplishments. So, and this is very much the world I find when I go out into corporate America. It's, it's and not it's surprising. Just not workable. It, it doesn't. Anymore. The way we're working is it surely isn't. And so I, I wonder what it is that you do with them and others uh, in in organizations in the energy project to, to help give a language and tools for people to, to be able to grasp 
their inner world and then to have some sense of uh, greater awareness and consciousness of what so, it so here's what it's idea, about yeah. and, and how to manage it better. Yeah. So the very first question I would ask when I'm in front of an audience or even a small, you know, a large audience or even a small group and for sure a individual who I might be working with is write down on one side of this sheet of paper I put in front of you how you feel at your best. Give me some adjectives that mm-hmm. describe how you feel at your best. And now write down some adjectives that tell me how you feel at your worst. And then I'll ask, so is there any doubt in your mind that there's a vast difference between how you perform when you're feeling your worst versus how you perform when you're feeling your best? And of course, the answer is a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. I mean, it's obvious mm-hmm. there, there's a huge difference. And then I'll say, um, so are you, do you move between these extremes across the course of a day or a week or a month? And again, the answer is always yes. Duh. And so if that's the case, oughtn't we to be looking at what it is that has the potential to influence how you feel? Because if we can identify the levers, in effect, that mm-hmm. are influencing how you feel, we can have a huge impact on it, and likewise for your people, and it will translate into performance. Because ultimately, as I'm sure you know, you've said yourself a thousand times, we're deal- We're living in a real. Realistically, we're living in a world, particularly with public companies, where the 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 end game is performing at a high level, mm-hmm. and that's the language that you have to speak if you're going to be taken serious. Of course, and you have to be able to deliver against it. So, so what are those what levers? To, that's what we're trying to deliver against, and it involves, for example, mm-hmm. um, the core level of our work, the work that's uh, you know we have been doing now for 15 years is teaching people at all levels how to manage their energy. What is their energy? It's their capacity to work. It's the fuel in their tank. It's what makes it possible for them to bring their skill and talent to life. And it turns out that there are four primary reservoirs of energy that human beings need. We're not machines. So physical, that's the obvious one, mm-hmm. the sort of foundation. You need to, you know, it's, a full reservoir of physical energy comes from a combination of sufficient sleep, mm-hmm. the right food, being fit, and intermittent rest and renewal during your waking hours. Rest. Rest, simple, rest to fill that reservoir. So rest is the one of those four that is least valued and understood among almost all people. The idea mm-hmm. that you rest, and particularly in a workplace environment, the idea that you would even need to rest is a sign, in a sense, of your weakness. Right. You're, you're a slacker. No. When I, when I lay down the mat in my office to take a nap, which I do periodically throughout the day, I'm sure you'd be happy to know that, uh, I do so uh, you know, um, in private. I wouldn't want anybody to know that I'm actually doing yeah, that. Uh, well, you've just announced it here. <laughs> Although I just listening. <laughs> that's true. Well, I've talked about it before uh, in in related contexts and conversations, but it, but it's something that one has to uh, you know not be typically uh, bragging about, right? Because uh, it's seen as counter counter normative to this you know performance uh, high performance ethic. No question. And we've spent fifteen years trying to 
demonstrate with, you know, really good research and a lot of uh, what, what we would say is experiment, you know, experimentation that we help our uh, people who go through our work to do to test the assumption that rest would actually undermine your effectiveness or mm-hmm. your performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the four. Physical. But there's also emotional, mm-hmm. which is the way you feel, what I've been talking about. And mm-hmm. we know that there's only one way you can feel to perform at your best, and it's the way you feel when you're performing at your best. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you answer that question, how do, you, how do you feel, you know how you have to feel. And the answer is excited, engaged, focused, happy, confident. You know, it's a bunch of high positive emotions. Mm-hmm. And that's no surprise to people. But as soon as they start thinking about it, they realize, oh, I don't feel that way that much of the Often time. Often enough, yes. So that becomes the target of, uh, of opportunity in the mm-hmm. emotional dimension. Mm-hmm. Mentally, it's focus. It's mm-hmm. the ability to focus on one thing at a time in an absorbed way, which is, of course, under siege right now. And Indeed. so one of the things we're helping people to do is gain back or take back or build more control of their attention, being mm. able to put it where they want to when they want to put it there. How do you do and that? And then finally, spiritual is well, okay. simply the energy you derive from the experience that what you do matters. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. when you believe that what you do matters, it's a powerful source of energy. So those are the four. All right. Mostly people have an inadequate reservoir of all four. Uh, so the the I, I find that this notion of attention and being able to focus in a you know in a concentrated way is is particularly fragile now. What, can you say just a little bit more before we move on, Tony, about what the key levers are there for helping people to gain a greater sense of uh, control over their attention? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Stu, it's, it's, I, wish it were, I wish it were more complicated and I could be more revealing, but it's practice. <laughs> Um, you know, course. we are what we repeatedly do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you are constantly moving your attention from whatever is your primary source of work and where you need to put your attention to answering emails and texting and, you know, checking the, checking the, the Internet and a hundred other things that we do, what you're training is distraction. And so the most powerful way to train attention is simply to do one thing at a time. Ideal, the, the best way to do it is with a time, with a beginning and end time. Hmm. Because if it's infinite, you're, you're going to begin to be distracted at some point. Mm-hmm. If you know that it's only going to go for a certain period of time, your ability to stay on the task tends to be greater. And for me, uh, one of the ways that I train my own attention is by reading books, because the internet, which is where most of us are, eyes, our eyes are pointed or directed, mm-hmm. the internet trains distraction. It, it, it lures you from moment to moment and website to website and so on. So what reading a book does is it invites you to get absorbed, particularly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if it's a novel, if it's if it, even if it's a nonfiction book, but it's telling a story, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. it has a narrative. So for me, reading books is a very powerful form of training attention. Obviously, the whole mindfulness movement yes. is built around the idea that meditation, which is really, you could argue it's defined as doing one thing at a time or learning to do one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. Meditation is a good way to train attention. Uh, ironically, I think... Mindfulness has gotten so much attention 
that it's led people to believe that that's the best way, for example, to train attention or to calm yourself down. I happen to believe from a lot of study over many years of meditation that, and this is what the contemplative traditions tell us, mm -hmm. that it's much better to start with a what we would call a concentration attention as opposed to an insight form of meditation. So in a concentration meditation, you're just returning the mind over and over again to a specific object or a Breath. mantra or a number, and that is really the best way mm -hmm. to get better at concentrating. Mm -hmm. But any form of meditation tends to be a useful way to train attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... So you, you help people to practice. So so you do a diagnostic and you find that the reservoirs are generally not full enough. Where do you then begin in, in your uh, work with uh, yeah, the, the so, People Fuel so, program? And I'd like to also know about what the Leader Fuel program is about. Right. So, Stu, we work at, at three different levels when we go into a full engagement with an organization. We think of ourselves as organizational transformation consultants, not as trainers, but training is a component of what we do. And we have a program called People Fuel, which mm -hmm. we do in a variety of, uh, at a variety of lengths, but it essentially is teaching people how to manage their own energy across those four dimensions. So uh, you, you would do a diagnostic, mm -hmm. your own energy audit, and mm -hmm. then uh, we'd look at, you know, that process of what we call People Fuel is helping people to understand where their biggest deficits are, uh, what kinds of interventions uh, are helpful in addressing those, and building rituals, you know, highly specific behaviors that mm -hmm. they do. I'll use the word again, um, practice, that they practice over and over again uh, until they become automatic. So what are, what are some of the most common about. ones that, uh, that people find useful uh, in terms of well, the rituals? Well, my favorite, uh, but there's... there's there's literally dozens, but my, my own personal favorite and the one I think actually serves people in many ways on multiple levels yeah. is do the first thing, do the most important thing in your day, the first thing in the morning for no more than 90 minutes and then mm -hmm. take a break and mm -hmm. do not subject yourself to any intrusions or distractions during that Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Now that has to be, you know, modified and changed by people depending on their circumstance. But here's the point. You wake up in the morning with the fewest distractions and the most energy yep. that you're likely to have for the rest of the day. Yep. Why not apply that attention and absence or diminishment of distraction to the to the to the uh, activity yeah. that you think is going to deliver the most value if you get it done. It's the only way to write a book. I, as I'm sure you know, that's, that's the it way that the I've done it. Write a book, and and uh, I I learned this practice by uh, writing mm -hmm. uh, books in three ninety minute sprints. These uh -huh. were the days when I was only a writer and I had that much time, but uh, that's that un unfortunately is gone. But uh, what was so powerful about that was that in those 90 minutes, those three 90-minute periods, so a total of four and a half hours of writing, with that level of focus and concentration, I got the books done twice as fast as I did by sitting at my desk all day long and constantly subjecting myself to distraction. Right, what principle could be applied to any number of activities. Speaking of books, and since we only have a couple of minutes left, your early work as a journalist was 
crucial to your development. You co-wrote The Art of the Deal with Trump. So how has your involvement in the public discussion about Trump changed your practice as a leader in your company and in the services you provide to your clients, if at all? Perhaps it hasn't had anything to do with it. But I, I'm, I'm deeply curious about, you know, are you including any... I mean, how has this changed your work now? Well, it's... Um, you know, first of all, let me just say that I, I wrote that book and then deeply regretted having written it mm-hmm. uh, very shortly after I did. In fact, while I was writing it, I regretted it. And mm-hmm. I regretted it for reasons I've detailed in many places, but yes. New Yorker did a long article by Jane Mayer about it. It's called The Ghostwriter Tells All. Mm-hmm. Uh, Great piece. I... I, I uh, I feel like Trump had a very, very positive impact on my life, ironically, because it was in doing that book that I came to clarity that I had to live my life in an incredibly different way <laughs> than his example provided. Hmm. And I've been, in a sense, trying to live that book down or hmm. uh, pay, pay, pay back the world for having done it for 30 years. Hmm. Um, I, I think, you know, Trump has point has has helped me to even more as his uh, uh, during the period he's been president, see the vast limits of mm-hmm. an outer focused man mm-hmm. and a uh, a person who who leads in the most, you know, insidious and destructive ways, as opposed to. Uh, what I like to call relational leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a world where the, one of the most important things a leader can do is to value uh, the people he or she leads as human beings. And hmm. um, Trump stands as a opposite example. Hmm. And so I think it's just fueled my belief that the work I'm doing is important and matters. And, and it, it surely does. Uh, Tony, we are at the end of our time. Um, before I, I let you go, tell us, uh, what, what, what is your hope for what your work uh, can, can accomplish and what your legacy might be? Yeah, let me see if I can talk to you in a minute. Uh, really, the work we do now, to me, what's most important is to open people up to the idea that their development, their growth, does not end when they hit 18 or 20 or 21, that a human being can continue to grow and develop throughout your life. And the workplace is the most obvious place for that to happen because it's where you spend most of your time. So what I'm trying to do with leaders, and uh, we're trying to do, we're, you know, we're 60 people now, um, is we're trying to help organizations think of themselves not uh, in the ways they traditionally have, but as... Uh, places of continuous growth. Mm-hmm. So yes, continuous growth in terms of the the success of the company, but continuous growth for people. Yeah. And that comes from basically seeing more. That's what development is all about. Mm-hmm. Seeing more deeply inside, seeing wider beyond yourself, and seeing longer rather than just you know getting stuck in the expedient uh, urgency of the moment. And this is really a, this work is now the work of helping people to evolve at a time when we need people to be more evolved. That is for sure. And I'm uh, 
grateful to you for the work that you're doing, and I'm sure our listeners are going to be eager to learn more. So, uh, Tony, how, how can listeners find out more about The Energy Project? They, they can write to info at theenergyproject.com. If they want to write to me directly, they can just write Tony at theenergyproject.com, or they can call our offices at 914-207-8800. Tony, thank you so much for being my guest on Work thank and you. Life. Appreciate it very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tony Schwartz and that it stimulated some new ideas about how you can create more energy in your life. We talked about a number of possibilities, and I'd like to invite you to challenge you to try the one that is Tony's favorite. And it's one that I really like too. And that is do the most important thing of the day at the very beginning of the day. Try that for one day in the week ahead. And when you get up, <clears throat> better even if you figure it out the night before, but when you get up, think about, well, what is it that I need a chunk of time, not more than 90 minutes, could be less, to accomplish today that I can do first thing when you've got the most energy for most people. Now, that might not be true for you, but it is for many, many people. Try blocking an uninterrupted chunk of time up to 90 minutes, again, less is okay, for that one most important thing. What happens in the rest of the day? How does the rest of the day feel as a result of your having tried that? What do you discover? I would love to hear from you. You can write to me at friedman.wharton.upenn.edu or on Twitter at Stu Friedman. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.